0: I'm Edna Sesian the director of the center just want to tell you about the next roundtable in May on May 12th the subject is the completeness of physics and the participants are from the physics side Priyamvada Natarajan from Yale the from the philosophy side uh, Tim Maudlin from NYU and Carol Rovelli from Columbia from the humanities side, Jonathan Kramnik from Yale, and from the mathematics side, Joseph Cohn from uh, Princeton. We are planning another round table, which will be the last before the summer, on June 16, on a science and art subject called Turbulence. And uh, it's still being planned, so I don't have all the names of the people who will be Uh, involved in that. In flux.
1: It's in flux. (laughs) It's in progress.
0: Uh, So, Anne-Marie Levine, who is a poet and a member of our executive board, is uh, the person who proposed this idea and has been instrumental in putting it together, and she will introduce the other participants.
2: So, we have this rather unusual subject. I've always been interested in, but don't I don't know anything about it, but I hope we'll all find out.
3: Just to introduce
2: boredom a little bit. Um, Schopenhauer described boredom as a tame longing without any particular object. Dostoevsky said it was a bestial and indefinable affliction. And the poet Joseph Brodsky said it, it was time's invasion of your world system. Unsurprisingly, not many can describe boredom, even though most have felt it, and it is one of the central preoccupations of the age. The most current definition comes from John Eastwood, who was with us. Raise your hand. (laughs) right, Uh, from Toronto. Uh, Drawing from research across many areas of psychological science and neuroscience, Eastwood and colleagues define boredom as an aversive state of wanting but being unable to engage in satisfying activity, which arises from failures in one of the brain's attention networks. But interestingly, people who investigate boredom find it thus. Boredom is a blast. To a curious and creative scholar, nothing is ever too trivial. And Peter Tui finds a perverse kind of glee in his subject that the Daily Telegraph wrote that. Curiously, the subject seems to invigorate those who study it. We hope that this roundtable will, in bringing together scholars from literature, psychiatry, neurology, cultural history, and the law, who have thought deeply about the subject, encourage the exploration of the meaning and characteristics of boredom, and in so doing, give the audience a chance to enlarge their own ideas. Um, I'm going to, as quickly as I can, because they have long biographies, introduce the participants. So would you raise your hand when I introduce you so that that we know who you are? Well, we know John Eastwood is a registered clinical psychologist, holds an academic appointment at York University in Toronto, Canada, as an associate professor of clinical psychology where he trains future psychologists and conducts research on the intersection between cognition and emotion. He has examined how attention is allocated to effective and socially relevant information, the influence of mood and motivation on attention, as well as the effective consequences of attention failures. In particular, he is examining the feeling of boredom associated with the unengaged mind. Recently, he obtained a research grant Uh, to explore the cognitive mechanisms underlying boredom. He's been awarded the Ontario Psychological Association Harvey Brooker Award for Excellence in Clinical Training, the Petro Canada Young Innovator Award, and the Premier's Research Excellence Award. Um, Jacqueline Gottlieb is Professor of Neuroscience in the Kavli Institute for Brain Science and the Mortimer B. Zuckerman Institute for Mind, Brain, and Behavior at Columbia. She completed her education at MIT, Yale, and the National Institute of Health, and she joined the Columbia faculty in 2001. Dr. Gottlieb is an internationally renowned expert on the neural mechanisms of attention and decision making and the recipient of numerous awards. Her work pioneers the study of active information sampling and curiosity, which she investigates using behavioral, computational, and neurophysiological methods. The central goal of her research is to understand cognition as an adaptive process, whereby the brain dynamically allocates its resources to best serve the demands of a decision situation. Gerald Hurwitz assistant professor of clinical psychology and on faculty for the past 30 years at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He has a full-time clinical practice in psychopharmacology and neuropsychiatry in New York City. Dr. Hurwitz is a founder and chief medical officer at M3 Information, an information technology company that focuses on mental health integration into primary care. He has authored and co-authored many texts in the fields of psychopharmacology and neuropsychiatry. Dr. Hurowitz received a master's degree in philosophy from NYU, an MD from Jefferson Medical College, and a Bachelor of Arts, Physics, and Philosophy from Yale. your biography That's is too long. Too, <laughs>
4: it's, it's actually boring. <laughs>
2: um, well, we'll Mark <laughs> no. has translated more than fifty books from the French, including works by Flaubert, Muriano, Duras, Breton, and Raymond Roussel a chevalier of the Ordre des Arts et des Lettres, and the recipient of a 2016 American Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature. He's the author of 11 books, including Revolution of the Mind, The Life of André Breton, um, Louis Buñuel's Los Alvidadas, Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited, and Sympathy for the Traitor, a Translation Manifesto. His essays and reviews have appeared in endlessly. The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, Art News, The Nation, Parnassus, Partisan Review, Book Forum, and elsewhere. And he directs the publications program at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Josefa Russ Velasco. Is associate in the Department of Romance Languages and Literature at Harvard University, and I don't know about pronouncing this, but Real Colegio Colleg- Complutense. Real Colegio Complutense. Thank you. <laughs> at Harvard, <laughs> uh, postdoctoral fellow. She is conducting multi-disciplinary research on the evolutionary role of boredom from a philosophical, anthropological point of view to argue against the widespread understanding of boredom as a pathological personality trait whereby medicalization of such a common daily annoyance is legitimized. As part of this approach, she is examining how the comprehension of boredom in terms of a mental disease has gradually formed historically as a result of the act of taking at face value the metaphor of boredom as an illness, especially represented in 19th century Western literature and philosophy. She's editor and author of the books Feminism Past, Present, and Future Perspectives. Contemporary Approaches in Philosophical and Humanistic Thought, and Hans Blumenberg, Literatura Estetica y Nihilismo, and of academic papers such as Hans Blumenberg's Philosophical Anthropology of Boredom, Boredom, Humanizing or Dehumanizing Treatment, Boredom, a Comprehensive Study of the State of Affairs. She's currently working on her next book, History of Boredom, The Way Towards the Pathologization of Boredom and its Alternatives. In the future, she would like to read a research project on boredom in old age and the improvement of seniors' quality of life in old people's homes by paying attention to the phenomenon of boredom. Uh, to begin, I'd like Mark Politzati to say a few introductory words on, the, on our subject.
5: Hello, everyone. Thank you, indeed, for being here. My apologies for for those who are looking at my back. Um, I would rather you hate me than be indifferent to me. Schopenhauer wrote that the two enemies of human happiness are pain and boredom, and of the two, the more fearsome is clearly boredom. We rot our brain cells with drugs or Twitter to avoid it. We willingly endanger life and limb to get away from it. Here today, I would much rather you throw tomatoes at me than yawn. So if you must walk out, please do it from anger or disgust, not from lack of interest. What is it about boredom that so frightens and discomforts us? Tolstoy defined it as the desire for desires, which speaks of a yearning, but one that can never be satisfied because it's a failure of yearning itself. The fact is, boredom is hard to concentrate on. We get restless. We are literally driven to distraction. The desperation we feel when we're forced to endure it for long periods can be positively claustrophobic. And yet, somewhat paradoxically, boredom maintains a real hold on our imaginations. You find unexpected references to it everywhere. Robert Musil, in his novel Three Women, writes of a group of prospectors, what caused them more suffering than food poisoning was melancholy and boredom which seems to buttress my conviction that we'd much rather suffer physical pain than suffer tedium. Others have taken a more prescriptive approach to boredom, offering recipes on how to be a bore that presumably really mean to tell us how not to be a bore. Voltaire's formulation was, the secret of being a bore is to tell everything. A sentiment echoed by the American humorist Bert Leston Taylor in a well-known quip, a bore is a man who, when you ask him how he is, Tells you. Today we would simply say TMI. (laughs) Still others have tried to combat boredom proactively, if not always considerately. The Surrealist leader André Breton, having cruelly humiliated one of his closest friends in public, explained afterward to his nonplussed companions, it's only natural when I'm bored to provoke an argument, even a nasty one, to avoid losing stamina. Now you have before you five people. We're going to spend the next two hours trying to engage your interest in the negation of interest, which might seem like the very definition of a fool's errand. But fear not, because for every sage who has despaired of boredom, others have zeroed in on its redeeming qualities. The American educator John Kabat Zinn, reflecting his work on mindfulness, points out that when you pay attention to boredom, it gets unbelievably interesting. Similarly, John Ashbery wrote in his poem The Short Answer. Why make things more difficult than they already are? Because if it's boring in a different way, that'll be interesting too. Indeed, the potential of boredom to spur creativity is well known to any artist. The life of the creative man, said Susan Sontag, is led, directed, and controlled by boredom. Avoiding boredom is one of our most important purposes. And Robert M. Persig, author of Sen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, put it even more bluntly when he said that boredom always precedes a period of great creativity. Are they protesting too much? Putting a happy mask over their agonized faces? Perhaps. But many are those who have written not only out of boredom, in both senses of out of, but have even made boredom their pet subject. Alberto Moravia's most celebrated novel is titled Boredom. So it's actually about a young man's, but a bored young man's, dangerous infatuation. The decadent writer Joris Karl Wiesmans, whom we might call literature's chairman of the board, made a career. You know I was going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> made a career of displaying, in book after book, his uninterest in society and all its works. If you search under boredom in the book listings on Amazon, it will return more than hundred pages of results, suggesting that the literature of boredom is practically an industry unto itself mention of literature quickly us, steers us toward boredom's highfalutin French cousin, ennui, as well as to his German relative, Weltschmerz. Even though the terms are nearly synonymous, each carries a particular resonance, and each stands apart from plain vanilla boredom in its connotations of romantic world weariness, of being not only bored, but extravagantly, even exotically bored. From Kierkegaard to Sartre, ennui has got something that mere boredom hasn't got. Cachet. So much so, in fact, that a company making protective sports gear chose it as their brand name. Here's the pitch on their website. Urban sports are extremely fun. Don't ruin the experience with the wrong gear. Choose ennui. (laughs) No, while ennui and weltschmerz give off a paradoxical whiff of excitement and intensity, plain old boredom is just, well, boring. It's ennui stripped of its glamour. It's what we all know when we're at home. It's the tedium of the familiar. Still, I would posit that that very familiarity of the same old, same old can also be a comfort. And I'll end my remarks with one last quote. This was said not by a famous pundit, but by the woman in a couple I know who for years have been maintaining a bi-coastal relationship. Once when the three of us were dining together, they were lamenting the difficulties of never quite seeing each other for long enough. And after thinking it over, she came out with one of the most romantic sentences I've ever heard. "It's not that I want you here all the time," she told her partner. "I just want the luxury of being bored with you." Thank you.
2: <laughs> so, feel free to jump in, or uh, or if you have something you'd like to say, or that you'd like us.
1: Well, I, I don't mind jumping in. Uh, first of all, I'm sitting over here just in case the tomatoes start flying. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd be as far away from Mark as I could be. I <laughs> know uh, I'm really struck as a psychiatrist with uh, sort of the uh, uh, very mundane nature, everyday nature of boredom, and how it's something just in front of us, and it's in front of everybody. A little bit like sleep every night. That's still mysterious, and I think that's really a wonderful feature of it. There was a And as to the sort of interest of boredom, I I, I make this observation for what it's worth. Uh, A recent review of two books on Jewish humor by Kathleen Shine in the uh, New York Review of Books quotes uh, the poet Billy Collins to say, "Uh, "Humor's the dog that leaves the room when you call its name." It's sort of well known, and it's an old saw that if you have a clinical or critical discussion of humor, it's not funny. Humor and mirth are sort of positive affects or feelings, emotional states. And the more you talk about them analytically, the less humorous it becomes. Boredom, maybe mirth's evil twin sibling, is has a negative valence. And but it seems the more we speak of it, the less boring it is. Uh, I thought that was an interesting way, to, place to start. And also, um, I won't go on to this point now. But I wonder about mirth as being a you know in, in more literally a kind of a. a the other side
6: of boredom. On that point, I mean, one of the things that I would like to say is that, um, you know, I think if you give, as you said, you know, if you give boredom at least sort of a second thought, it's sort of beguiling, really, and enticing, and on the one hand, I think that's both a blessing and a curse for scholars of boredom, because it is so open to understanding, definition, interpretation, study, in so many different ways, it's almost like, you know, this Rorschach that can capture all of our thoughts, and it indeed does seem to um, provide an organizing framework for a lot of preoccupation and concern that people have today. So on the one hand, that's just plain fun as a scholar, right? Because you can just roll around in this unconstrained, limitless (laughs) landscape, but if we want to you know, really collaborate with one another, if we want to be able to um, make some progress, dare I say, if that's an okay thing to say, (laughs) uh, in our understanding of boredom, that I think we need to find sort of some lingua franca that we can all work from, and we need to find some way to work together to develop some precision around terms and around the uses of our words because the term boredom is so elastic that as a scientist, it's really difficult to wrestle with it, right? When one person uses the term, I might mean something very different than another. So while I really think um, multidisciplinary approaches, multi-method approaches are absolutely the way to go, um, I think it would be wise for us to find ways to corral and constrain our thinking and to find ways that we can communicate across disciplines and work with each other.
7: Yeah. I totally agree, because uh, today, um, concerning boredom, we have to admit that we have uh, more questions than than responses, than solutions. So, But we all recognize that uh, we have to do that, to speak of, of boredom. Uh, at least we have to admit that boredom to talk of boredom is not boring, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we are all smiling all the time. So uh, my first reaction to, to your presentation, your fascinating presentation, uh, you told in, a, in one time that uh, boredom conduct to disaster uh, at the very beginning. So I think uh, boredom conducts to, to disasters uh, in... Yeah, because we are worried about boredom, Especially because of uh, the consequences of being bored, uh, um, in particular of the consequences of not to be able to to get rid of boredom. So I think uh, boredom mm, leads to disaster in two different situations when when individuals are unable to to give a response uh, a reply to, to boredom and also this is the the topic uh, you psychiatrists and psychologists uh, are working on when individuals have uh, problems uh, with regard to attention and so on and also on the on the other situation when the context is uh so um, uh, is so closed that don't uh, doesn't offer. Uh, the the responses you are expecting in this case when the individual is not able because of the his a uh, the, their own problems mental problems and so on or because of the context in these two situations is when boredom leads to to the disaster I mean to to behaviors that uh, anybody could, could say uh, are pathological, are uh, deviant behaviors. Yeah,
5: mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I completely agree. And uh, I'm wondering, to your point, maybe, maybe one of the things to um, try to distinguish between is boredom and the feeling of discomfort that we feel when we think that we call boredom, mm-hmm. uh, which are maybe not quite the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Because I feel very lucky in the sense that if I'm on my own, I actually never feel bored. I mean, I can feel you know, tired, I can feel that I don't have any particular activity, I can feel a lack of energy, but I don't feel bored in that sense of being almost kind of desperately anxious to get out of whatever that state is. Where I do get bored sometimes is when I'm in a place where I can't leave. So, I mean, boredom is, you know, hell is other people, and so is boredom. And, and, um, and the classic example for me is in my day job, uh, you know, if I'm stuck in a meeting, and I just have to be there. And sometimes they, they can be great, but sometimes they can get really painful. And it does cause that sense of claustrophobia that I, that I referenced, um, where you know my my astral self is sort of getting up from the table and walking out of the room and going ah, you know, it's running down the hall. But my physical self, because I'm sort of stuck because of you know the expectations of the job, is still sitting there just waiting for this (laughs) thing to end because whatever they're talking about is just of no interest whatsoever. And um, there's a memoir I remember reading once by, the former director of the Louvre, was talking about his one of his predecessors would go to meetings, of which they had zillions, and the French are even worse than, than we are in the museum world, um, and they would go to meetings, and at a certain point, he would just stand up and say, okay, I'm going to the movies now, and all the other curators would be sitting around the table, completely nonplussed, because this man actually dared to do what they probably wanted to do themselves, but he actually stood up and did it, and walked away, and it eventually cost him his job, but it kind of didn't matter, because he just didn't <laughs> want to be bored anymore.
7: This is the, <laughs> first, uh, the first kind of bored don't uh, Heidegger tol- talk about mm-hmm. order of a situation in which you are for- not you are not forced to be to be there yeah. but uh, you should well, you're, you're constrained you, you should constrained. and you you uh, you decide to go to go there voluntarily mm-hmm. nobody is forcing you but you know in advance you are going to be to be bored mm-hmm. no sorry I'm not sorry if uh, this is the first of the the, the second kind of boredom Heidegger talk about.
5: I would actually take slight issue with that, because the fact oh. is that there are pressures and constraints. on I mean, it. you are kind of forced. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not forced physically at gunpoint.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: It's not like being in jail. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that the dictates of my job and the position I have at the museum <laughs> and the expectations are such yeah. that I'm expected to be in that room, I'm expected to pretend that I'm paying attention, I'm expected to pretend that I actually care what these people are talking about. And I mean, and obviously most of the time I do, but once in a while it's, you know, <laughs> it's where I earn my salary. Um, and and this, is, this is part of the job. So you are kind of, there are pressures to, to, to do it. I can't just walk, walk out as much as I would love to.
8: I have a question about the other kind of boredom that happens when you're alone by yourself. And there's some people who don't get bored in that situation, and I sympathize, and I think we're very lucky. But there are other people who do get bored um, in that situation. And what do you think is the difference? I know you, you've mm. studied this a lot. And maybe related to this, what is the role of boredom in mental illness and psychopathology? or what?
6: Let's say, Yeah,
0: there's a big topic. What is the role in general? Yeah. Why do humans have
8: bored? Ah. Yeah, so, but, but what's the difference between people who get bored when they're by themselves and people who don't? Right, well, right. I,
6: have a, I have a few right. thoughts that address a number of those right. issues, and, right. and please jump in if... I mean, there's, there's lots of different factors, cultural, social, environmental, psychological factors that can cause boredom, right? There's a wide variety of things. But I do think we need a, a, a clear definition of what the state of boredom is. And so I define the state of boredom as um, the uncomfortable feeling of being mentally unengaged. And while not perfect, I think it does a pretty good job of succinctly capturing uh, the definition. And I think the underlying cognitive mechanism is this state of underutilized cognitive resources, right? We have mental capacity that's sort of pent up and not being utilized or not being used. And I think that's an inherently uncomfortable feeling. And I think we are just designed, evolutionarily, to experience that state as aversive. And I think that's a good thing. Right? It's a good thing. I mean, we wouldn't be here today having this conversation if we were content to be mentally unengaged. Right? Uh, we wouldn't be here in this culture, the society, uh, not unless not, not this conversation itself. So. I say boredom is the uncomfortable feeling of being mentally unengaged. And I think you can compare it to physical pain. I think that uh, the, the discomfort of boredom is analogous to the discomfort of physical pain. They both keep us safe. Or they both keep us well. Um, so it's a good thing that we have the capacity for boredom. That doesn't mean that we should cultivate boredom. Right. So, just because pain is a good thing, we don't go around cultivating it. Right? We don't say yes, we should cultivate it. Um, Nor do I think we should become preoccupied with trying to avoid pain at any cost. That would be that would not be advantageous. Nor would it be advantageous to try to avoid boredom at any cost. Right. Similarly, like pain, um, boredom can become chronic and problematic. Right. Uh, Similarly, like pain, I think boredom is the signal, and how we respond to it is what's really critical, right? Pain is just a message, it's just Mm -hmm. a signal that tells us we're in a non-optimal state, We're, we're cognitively unengaged, and it gives us that impetus to do something about it. Now, what we do, you know, bungee jump, go and get drunk, read a novel, whatever, we can all respond in very different ways, and that's where Boredom can become problematic, right? It's about our response to it. I am not a fan of the idea of pathologizing boredom. I don't think we should consider it an illness. I don't think we should consider it a problem. It, in its chronic form, it does co-occur with what I would call mental disorders. But I don't think of boredom itself as a pathological state, uh, but one that we need to handle carefully uh, in lots of different contexts.
1: I'd like to expand on that a little bit and also maybe make it a little bit more intuitive for people who are listening about your, that's an excellent analogy to pain. <clears throat> when you say that people, we don't, we need pain, it does serve a function. I think most of us think of things like, you know, you stubbed your toe or it's considerable pain, but you know, there are all these folks out there who don't have pain fibers and don't have any sense of pain. And You know, their, their number one problem is, see, I'm here, I'm a little constrained, I can't keep changing my posture. But... We all, if we stay in the same posture exactly for any period of time, pain is what makes us want to move or so our joints don't get stiff, et cetera. And, you know, people in hospital who are forced to be in the same position can start to develop pain, and it becomes worse and worse. So it can really be a very tiny negative feeling. Pain can be. And where we don't even recognize it's occurring, then we shift our posture Because it's starting to build, but it's there. That is a little tiny bit of pain. And so I think using that as an analogy to what boredom is is really useful because boredom can happen in these sort of micro doses and have an effect in spurring us to do whatever hopefully we'll do next. Um, I'll just say one other thing just to be a little bit bit argumentative with your wish to uh, define boredom. It's uh, just simply that, you know, there's, there's an idea that goes back to the beginnings of modernism, of, I'm sorry, of, of the, sort of the enlightenment, that if only we could have a language, a scientific language that was precise, then all of our problems would be solved, right? So whereas I'm really, I think the the protean nature of, of boredom is actually a very interesting issue because it has many sides and aspects to it and it fits in so many places. And I'm certainly in favor, and I like your, your definition of it as well. But um, I think we also can bear in mind that it is a sort of slightly ambiguous term, and it does serve in different contexts slightly differently, or it has a role in different contexts slightly differently. And I think that's actually interesting. We don't want to cut off an idea about boredom uh, by, by reducing it too much.
6: Fair enough. I, I mean, I agree with that. I remember actually once uh, attending a conference where uh, this um, poet was talking uh, was uh, talking about T.S. Eliot, and he was talking about how any definition of H2O needed to include a little duckweed, right? Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that idea, but I think right now, if you can talk about a field of boredom study, yeah. the problem is we got too much duckweed <laughs> and not enough precision. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I certainly think we need to, to stay open. And I do think that there are... Um, useful, precise ideas that cut across contexts, and finding those um, common patterns is, I think, very exciting and and very useful. I I
0: wanted to ask about the the boredom definition and so on, because what Mark was describing, I also have uh, been lucky enough to be in that position sometimes and i never described that as boredom to myself i described it that i was restless irritated impatient couldn't tolerate all the nonsense being talked about but it, it, i felt uh, more annoyance whereas when i am bored is more that i kind of pass am passively not knowing what to do or how to engage or so there is a there's a difference there And one question then is, you who think about, you people who think about boredom and are are knowledgeable about it, how do you define it? What is it exactly?
5: Actually, if I can just jump in with one thing, because there's uh, etymologically, and this might or might not have a bearing, but the French direct translation of boredom is, of course, ennui. Ennui comes from Old French, which means um, annoyance. And that comes from Latin, which means hated. So there is the, the annoyance, <laughs> hatred, you know, boredom you know, vector is, is very tight.
8: I had a fellow in my lab once who was from France. And he would always say these things, this is boring. This is yeah. boring. And, it was and he meant it annoying, off, right? And he meant this is annoying. It's irritating. Well, it
1: sort of shows also the cultural <laughs> quality of boredom and yeah. whether or not one chooses to use that term. Because right? I think. When you heard, Ed, that the, some people would label what you were experiencing as boredom, I don't think you said, well, I didn't have boredom. That was something else. You said, hmm, I didn't think to call that boredom, yeah. in a way. And I have a different thing I refer to when I <coughs> yeah. think of boredom. But I think there may yet be something in common between those two states, which is I don't know w- yet what I want to do with myself, and gee, I wish I did, which is the wishing to have mm-hmm. a wish that Mark referred right, to. Yeah. And then there's the underutilization of my, uh, act, my the sort of cognitive low capacity right where i could do more or i'd like to act and somehow i'm constrained to not act and that can create a sense of boredom
2: but the words that ed used are all active words mm-hmm. i mean i'm i'm annoyed i'm irritated I'm, they're all active words whereas boredom as you pointed out is is a passive well, I think it's a mm. passive state, maybe passive. not. So, what else could be in Is boredom it? that's not passive?
9: Well, I, it would why, make why a passive? difference. Hmm? Why passive?
2: Well, Which sense? as opposed to annoyed, irritated, you know, all those things, they're, they're, they're active words. And I boredom I think
1: that's it. I think that, yeah. that whatever, the dichotomy captures it because the person's both idle in some sense or not acting as much as they might. And yet they have an impulse to do so. So there's the active impulse and then there's the feeling I don't know what.
0: Because <clears throat> in French, ennui has a passive quality to it. Whereas if you say some ennui, that annoys me. Mm-hmm. So when you say some ennui means that annoys me. But when you say I have ennui oui. I mean, I'm just passively feeling something, mm-hmm. uncomfortable.
8: Yeah. <laughs> So so this gets back to a concept that comes up in in many, many contexts, and that is the optimal level of stimulation, right? And it comes up, I mean, I don't really know. It's a very mysterious concept in neuroscience when it's presumably it maps on some network state, right? If your your brain is a state, a, a a big dynamical systems of neurons interacting, and there's presumably some optimal rate of interaction that, it's just good, and it feels good for whatever reason, and so this is how I imagine boredom, even though i have I couldn't tell you what that state was, what the principles are, but imagine boredom as, as being in some other state that is understimulated relative to that optimal one and and of course, you can imagine being overstimulated, and that feels bad in a different way. Uh, but so it's not really determined by any single External circumstance. If if some people the same boring meeting may be experienced as irritating by somebody and
5: and fascinating and boring
8: and fascinating maybe maybe <laughs> by others. <laughs> Presumably. By <boring> <laughs> yes, like boring people. Or maybe even by yourself in a different day. No, well,
1: It's funny to read some uh, of the some but, of the methods yeah. sections of yeah. some of the papers on boredom where They're trying to, you know, you've been among them. Where they, well, what can we use as a stimulus for boredom? Which is almost again an oxymoron. (laughs) It's funny to read, like, oh, we got this movie that's so boring, we'll show that and yeah, yeah,
8: (laughs) Yeah. and and it's so, but it's never a property only of the external environment. Is what that external environment does to you, what kind of memories it evokes, what kind of mental life it stimulates, right? So uh, if, yeah. if all of a sudden that boring meeting, something came that triggered your memory of something, then at least you could distract yourself with some memory. It wouldn't be and, and, it wouldn't and, and you <laughs> wouldn't be bored anymore, right? It's <laughs> so it's not, right, it's not a, a function just of familiarity or just of novelty. There's some happy medium. Um, if things are too simple or too complicated, they can both be boring, so there's some happy medium there, right? Whatever that is and and boring boredom I think is the state Where you might be understimulated and don't like it and want to get out of it as I mm-hmm. think you very well say under-stimulated
7: yeah. and over-stimulated. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Well, they're
1: participants of
5: a sort yeah. right? <laughs> We're doing a practical demonstration
7: so bored right. right. com, comes uh, right. from both, uh, when right. you are over and under-stimulated. Yeah, under-stimulated. Yes, when when the flow is broken. Right.
6: Hmm? So I guess what I would say is that, you know, where we choose to put the definitional boundaries is up for grabs, right? I mean, there's no a priori right answer. You know, we have to decide what's useful. And, and you know, while I think boredom has a long sort of history, I'm sure that culture and situation and time have shifted where that boundary has been put slightly. Um, You know, in my mind, uh, I would think about it as an emotional state. And I think the two neighboring states that we need to distinguish it from are frustration on the one hand and apathy on the other. And I think boredom fits somewhere in between those two. Uh, And I think it's important not to conflate boredom with apathy, Mm -hmm. uh, which often people do. And I think Mm -hmm. that boredom involves that desire for desires. We already heard the Tolstoy quote, right? And that idea goes back to Schopenhauer's formulation of boredom, that there's this restless longing and desire, but an inability to articulate what is longed for, right? So it's not at all a passive state. It's a very, uh, there's a sense of urgency and the desire for action. Uh, The psychoanalytic psychoanalytic writers talked about um, the, you know, desire being too threatening and so it needed to be repressed, but that desire for action remained without any target for discharging that energy, right? So there's that, it's not apathetic. And on the other hand, frustration, in frustration you have a goal out on the horizon and something is thwarting your progress towards it. Something is standing between you and a desired state and that's frustration. But in boredom you don't have that future desired Mm -hmm. state articulated, right? So you can't be frustrated. Um, You know, I heard Uh, another psychoanalytic writer that talked about a board person is like putting on a a suit, took, you know, it doesn't quite fit, right? No, is it, or trying to remember a name, right? Like, what is that guy's name? Was it Joe? Was it George? No, no, no. What was it? Like you're, you've got this sense, this wraith, there's something there that you want, but you can't name it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of the over or under stimulation, I would again, go back to the idea that, that it, situations that are too challenging, right? If we attend a lecture on some topic that we know nothing about, it's like we can't get a foothold in, right? We can't get a foothold in, and so we are not cognitively able to engage with what's happening. If if the lecture is on something we know too well and it's sort of very, you know, uninteresting to us, below our capacity, then it doesn't engage us either. And so I think in both, you know, those over- understimulating under-stimulating or over-challenging under or under-challenging over under uh, under situations, they have that final common pathway of being cognitively unengaged. And when I say that that's the underlying subpersonal cognitive mechanism, I don't wish to say that that's all there is to it. There's a phenomenological, there's a subjective part on top of that underlying mechanism that's very important, and that's where all the affective kinds of components come in. Mm -hmm.
7: Jumping a little bit, uh, we are all the time talking talking about kind of boredom, as you know, uh, there are. We should talk of boredoms perhaps, because uh, we are talking of this uh, situational, uh, contextual boredom. But uh, what about uh, a, a society uh, which is bored, uh, completely bored? Uh, this, uh, you know, this separation, this differentiation between uh, the situational boredom or or, yeah, yeah in the situation in which you are bored, but if you can do something, boredom, perhaps uh, you, you may get rid of boredom. Uh, but then you have the, the profound boredom, the deep boredom that later Jean philosophers mm, talk about. Uh, this this um, differentiation uh, was established by Paul Valéry, uh, the French poet Paul Valéry, uh, in the century, Yes, last century, and then uh, also, if I'm not to, um, yeah, I think it was Krakauer, Siegfried Krakauer, then also repeated this uh, definition of boredom in a certain situation, and the boredom that a society suffer, A society, uh, this kind of boredom you suffer when you are hesitated uh, with your cultural Mm, social, economic uh, structures. Yeah, so perhaps uh, apart from trying to, attempting to, to define, to, to find a definition for, for boredom, we, we have to start talking of boredoms, different boredoms.
5: I mean, I, I, I agree not to make it too focused in one direction, but when you talk about society's societal boredom, is that... Mm is that really boredom in the sense, you know, in the sense even in the in the larger sense that we're understanding it or is that more metaphorical because you know societal boredom sounds to me like it shades more toward what you were talking about in frustration that that when we talk of a society being bored it really is that the people in that society are feeling that there's something that's not working, whether it's an economic structure, whether it's a political situation, mm-hmm. whether it's their ability to affect I mean. it, yeah. But that's not really bored of that, That's really frustration. Yeah. I mean, we're not bored with, you know, the current administration. We're just frustrated with it.
1: <laughs> well, but it might be, be the case <clears throat> that some part of our enculturation, in a particular, society may not give us the goals or may not cultivate the goals in people. I don't know how to exactly say this, but... If those goals are not cultivated by people, you know, it's sort of like some young people as they're coming up through school, they'll say, I don't know what I want to do with myself and say, well, go see a career counselor, which is perfectly reasonable. But the idea is maybe that person will find some interest the person wasn't aware they had or give them some focus and direction. So frustration implies there are things barring people from expressing themselves. And I think that's a more... uh, a, a sort of a description, a philosophical and sociological description of, let's say, anger among the young underclass or for, and feminism and such. And so people would say, well, yes, of course, women are, of course, African-Americans are angry because, look, they're being mistreated. So why are you treating it like a psychological problem? It's a, it's a societal problem. In this case, I think, with boredom, you could say, actually, also, people don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. And they may also be frustrated. It's not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um Yeah.
6: I mean, I I do think when we judge something to be boring, we're doing social work, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're dismissing, we're denigrating. Um, So to describe something as boring is kind of a social act, I think. And so I I would definitely agree in that regard. And you can think about it, you know, like a child in a classroom who, let's say they're struggling with math. uh, Wow, this is boring. Mm -hmm right? What's happening right there, right? Well, maybe this child lacks the capacity to be successful in this context, but it's a way to save face. It's sort of an aloof kind of stepping back. Um, and we use boredom to judge people as well, right? I had, I had one graduate student who was doing a project cross-culturally looking at boredom in, in rural um, uh, communities in Guatemala. And it's interesting that when people, people say, well, I'm never bored, I'm never bored because I got too much work to do. It's just those rich guys over there that get bored, right? It's a way of rejecting the other. So I do think social work is happening around boredom in a way that's interesting and a little different than, than other kinds of emotions, perhaps. Um, and I, so I think your point is well taken in that regard. I also think that there are many different potential factors that can cause Boredom. And, you know, you, you've touched on that as well. Yeah. But I think if you're thinking about it as, a, as, a, as an emotional state, I would think of it as singular mm-hmm. with lots of different causes and then lots of different responses I might mm-hmm. make to it. Yeah. So there's certainly variety that needs to be explored and understood.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember uh, many, many years ago uh, we were talking uh, one of the early meetings like that, and Carl Pribrum was there. And Carl Pribrum said, uh, Many of these words we use, and we were talking about creativity, imagination, so on, he said, These are just words we use, that it's because we don't really know what they are about, and we give them a name. Right. Do you think boredom falls into that category? That uh, it's. Well, I think all. Unlike, you know, for example, when, when we say fear, as an emotion, it seems to be a lot more specific, and now you can talk about fear circuits and so on. But boredom seems to be, uh, as I listen, it seems like different people uh, feel it or, or 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 describe it or like your student with the math who says I'm bored. Right. It, it, does he actually have an emotion that is specific and can be can be called boredom? Oh, I mean, this is, this is kind of
6: where I started, right? I mean, my thought would be that boredom can be like fear if we can work together and and come up with a definition. But I think the person in the street will and should continue to use the term very broadly and very loosely, uh, just the way people use the term fear in a way that, you know, neuroscientists would say, well, that's not actually not quite fear, right? Yeah. I mean, they make yeah. like distinctions right. between fear and anxiety and all kinds of nuances. Uh, that others uh, wouldn't make. So I think we should start by listening to the person in the street to develop kind of uh, grounded definitions of our concepts and, 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 and make sure they're culturally relevant and we should look at theories. But then I think we need to do a little pruning and kind of come up with that definition so that we can work with it like we can work with fear.
8: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think it's so coming from neuroscience where we're not really studying b- boredom yet, but we're not studying a lot of interesting higher level concepts like curiosity, right? It's, right? And, it, but it's not that they cannot be studied, it's just we didn't get to them yet. So this is why, I mean, fear seemed impossible to study at the biological level not long ago, and all these decision making. Everything we care about that's interesting, it's very hard to define. Right, yeah. but that's, right. that's in a sense that's why. But we're not going to give up trying to, you know, operation. That's the reason it. why
7: some, just so, some disciplines yeah. are in charge yeah. of studying boredom because it's so difficult to define that.
8: Yeah. Perhaps
7: anthropologists mm, think, wow, what what we are going to say about boredom, because it's an affection, it's an emotion, uh, a state of mind
8: is... Well, I mean, so it's the same. It's sort of the the dark side of mental life, right? So even when we study feeding behavior in neuroscience, we don't Mm -hmm. say we study hunger, right? Hunger is a motivation for feeding. Mm -hmm. So the same thing, boredom is the motivation for engaging in mental life. Mm -hmm. But So I was going to ask you, uh, speaking of this disconnect, I mean, in a sense, you're, you're a lot farther ahead than we are in neuroscience, and this is what attracted me to read some of your studies. Uh, because I started thinking about what motivates us to engage attention, what motivates us to be curious. Mm-hmm. And then I looked in my field, in neuroscience, and I'm amazed to find that in neuroscience, we think of mental activity as a cost. So right, it's really nice to be able to put everything that has resource limitation in an economic framework, Mm -hmm. right? So attention, mental capacity is limited. So we have to decide how to engage it. Either I'm attending to one thing, that means I'm not attending to the other. Um, And and we engage our mental life in order to obtain some benefit, whatever that is, utility, right? But but optimally or rationally, we want to obtain that benefit with the minimum of effort. So in that framework, mental life is a cost that if we, everything being equal, I'd rather not pay, right? So if you give me a choice between doing something that's a bit more difficult and a bit more easy, if you don't pay me extra, I'll just go for the easy (laughs) stuff, right? That's our theories. That's the state of our, our theories that people go by. Right. And, of course, that opens the question, well, what, then why are we curious? Why right. are people reading books for no apparent benefit? Why don't you just go to sleep to conserve energy? and Things like that, right? So, so, so clearly that little definition that we're working on is very incomplete. Mm. And um, anyway, so I was wondering what you think about that.
6: Well, I think that's um, a great question. question. and And... Right. and um, so, you know, you could summarize yeah. that maybe as this cognitive miserly model, right? This yes. idea that we yeah. we want to uh, reduce our expenditure of resources and we want to... Now, so sometimes people, when they hear me say that yeah. the state of being mentally unengaged is inherently aversive, they say, well, wait a second, how does that jive with this uh, cognitive miserly idea? Right. But I don't see a conflict there because I'm not... You know, the cognitive miserly model is about the exertion of effort, right? And there are ways to be cognitively engaged that don't necessarily require a lot of cognitive effort, you know? Mm -hmm. So you think about reverie, daydream, mind wandering. These are all ways of being engaged mentally that don't involve cognitive effort. Mm -hmm. Um, However, you brought up some other examples like curiosity, which I think is an interesting uh, uh, example. And you might argue, well, curiosity sometimes does require the exertion of effort, and therefore it might be it contradictory yeah. uh, with this miserly model. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 have, I don't have a kind of a solution to that paradox when it comes to curiosity, but I feel confident that we can say that being mentally unengaged is inherently aversive without it uh, being in conflict with this miserly model. Um, And I think the miserly model, as you're pointing out, is too simplistic, right? Uh, right. That certainly there are times in which affectance motivation, like we're motivated to demonstrate our competence, to be effective in the world, to make changes, and um, that sometimes requires effort. And so I think the miserly model is, which has its base in this very narrow cognitive science kind of paradigm yes. is, yeah. doesn't apply more broadly when we look at human life.
5: Well, maybe, I don't know if this, um, how this affects or whether it's contradicts the miserly model, but, you know, maybe one pathway into it is to broaden the definition of what payback is. That's right. Because, you know, you talk about, the, okay, I want to do something for the least possible effort if you're only going to pay me X, Y, Z. And I'm thinking, you know, just in a very practical, basic term, translations I've done that have taken me enormous amounts of time and enormous amounts of effort and for which I've gotten, you know, one nth the amount that I would usually charge for for one of these because right. I just wanted to do it. It was a labor, right. you know, the, the, right. the labor yeah. of love, right? right? And so the payback there is my satisfaction in taking the time and putting in the effort to do what I consider a good job and being able to then read it and say, oh, that's actually pretty good. That's my payback. I mean, the monetary part is fine. But if it were only because of that, I just wouldn't have done it at that rate. And if you talk about why people engage in altruistic events or why they, you know, why, why they do things that don't seem to have any particular return, the return is, you know, pot- potentially, the return is, in fact, that feeling of having engaged in some sort of altruistic effort. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: this reminds me a little bit of what we were talking about earlier about the the, the very small valence attached to pain or boredom, mm. and I think the same thing applies to reward. Mm-hmm. And we have this new model, newish model about how dopamine functioning in the brain and the midbrain affects our anticipation of reward. And you know, bear in mind actually, you know, you could, that actually that can easily become too simplistic a model where we think, oh, well, reward equals dopamine, and that's clearly wrong. But it's because actually, I, I was careful to say, the anticipation of reward mm-hmm. is different from reward, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we each of us uh, imagines will be the reward if I do X, Y, or Z may have a greater bearing on what we end up doing in the world. And I do mean, again, just like with the issue about a slight bit of pain in one joints, if I'm sitting somewhere and I'm just idle mm-hmm. and um, I suddenly see a bottle of water, let's say I just want to move it because it's not where I want it to be or... Or let's say I'm thirsty. Um, very small valence of interest then motivates me to get up and move and and to do it. And I suppose that does involve something to do with uh, our, the dopamine that's going through my brain. <clears throat> I was also interested in the whole idea of the sort of default mode network, which hasn't been mentioned so far, mm-hmm. um, and which is sort of a, a, a sort of a background activity in the brain. And it's interesting to note, uh, in keeping with our talk about boredom. Not being a, 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 not being a passive state. And, and again, I'm, I want to be careful not to equate boredom to the default mode network, but the default mode, mode network, which is sort of how our brain seems to be functioning, the network connections between parts of our brain when we're idle, um, is, not, is also not a very passive thing. And that's part of the thing that's interesting about it. It's actually an active state um, that needs to be sustained in some fashion. Um, and so I know that then switching from that idle state to a more, you know, a salient state where things become interesting, and I might want to choose to do X, Y, or Z, that's an important area, right? And I think we have to carefully imagine where might boredom fit in there in that paradigm. Well, there's
6: actually yeah. some research yeah. on that. There's, there's not very much, uh, but, you know, I think one of the areas that's really exciting is looking for the, the neural and the physiological signatures of boredom. <laughs> So you've already mentioned the default mode network, which is active when you're sort of at rest or when you're engaged in internal thought, an internal reverie, and the central executive network when you're engaged with kind of tasks in the world, right? I'm trying to figure out, you know, something in front of me. Um, And certainly when you are bored, the uh, default mode network is more active than when you are engaged in some activity. But importantly... Uh, You know, there was a study done by a colleague of mine, James Danker, at the University of Waterloo, where they compared someone in a bored state versus a resting state. And there is a difference, right? So the insular cortex is another part of the brain that is thought, amongst other things, to be involved in helping you toggle back and forth between the default mode network and the central executive Mm -hmm. network, and is also responsible for tagging saliency in our environment. Mm And so I'm going well beyond the data in my interpretation here, and this is only one study. But one way of interpreting this is that a person is having a hard time shifting out of the default mode network into the central executive. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of you're stuck, mm-hmm. uh, where you can't disengage from the one and engage in the other uh, the other neural network. Mm-hmm. So indeed, you know, just to summarize, the default mode network is quite. Uh, centrally involved in boredom, but it's not equivalent with boredom. Exactly, There's some yeah. very important distinctions. I, in
7: fact, uh, external movements um, are also very different. When you are bored, sometimes you yawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's totally different, too. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a thought, actually, yawning. I read something about yawning being involved in this toggling act. You, did, did, did I make no. that up? Or do you know whether... I don't know. I, I think forget. I saw some reference where, yeah, they, where they mentioned that yawning <clears> may helps actually you. help someone sort of switch out of the default mode network, which is just perfectly in keeping with what you're saying. Uh,
8: So when I think about curiosity, again, with very little data, (laughs) but the way I imagine this, so if the default mode network is engaged in resting state and it's involved in mind-wandering, all Hmm. kinds of mind-wandering, so people, when they... When they don't do anything, people do stuff. Usually, there's studies that probe the thoughts, and usually right. you're planning stuff right. most of the time, and sometimes it's, it's other things like singing songs or mm-hmm. reciting stuff. Okay, so, so that's associated with the default mode network, but that's a resting state which is not boring. So if you can... So the way I imagine this working is that if you can engage your default mode network together with your memories and somehow engage the reward system then you're happy you're in a good mental state mm-hmm. but there must be some other state where you're resting and you can't engage that whole network and then you're not happy
6: i agree right? well put it right? sort of what i was trying to get at is you're in between the two
8: yeah mm-hmm. you can't you can't
6: you can't right. get into one mode you can't act you can't activate one yeah. neural network fully yeah. or the other yeah. And so, you know, I, I do see mind-wandering to be a consequence of boredom in situations where you're constrained and you can't leave. Yeah. You, you know, you might mind-wander as a way to engage your cognitive resources and right. therefore to not be bored. Right. Uh, and when you're able right. to do that, then you just right. see default mode network. But when you're being told you have to pay attention to this and you don't really want to and right. you're trying you're trying to daydream yes. at the same time,
8: yes. it all gets right. it all gets bungled <laughs> well, then
6: up,
1: then right? The right? Then yes.
8: there's an the interesting
1: right. loop right. where you become that's interested right. in what your mind's wandering over. Sure. And yeah. then that becomes salient in of itself. Sure. And what is that exactly? And how does the brain adapt yes. or respond in those circumstances? Because right. I think yes. people who are creative almost certainly are, you know, sort of riffing off these sort of mind wandering uh, uh you know, uh, events and, and then paying attention to it and developing it. And uh, it's interesting. Yeah. And
6: I think, um, on, you know, just maybe this is shifting the topic a little bit, but I'd be very interested to hear what you think about this in terms of curiosity, you know, because, um, there's a psychologist that talked, used this term constructive internal reflection. Um, and she was referring to that mind wandering state when you are kind of riffing and that creativity is happening. And I think what happens with boredom is we often go to the external world for salvation, right? We, mm-hmm. For relief. Mm-hmm. And I think that short circuits the capacity to develop that constructive internal reflection as a, mm-hmm. as a skill or as an ability. And a resource. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 I, you know, and I think culturally, we're in a culture right now where our attention is being yanked around by the collar from all these exogenous demands, right? Look here, do this. I mean, standing in Times Square, you know, I'm from the big town of Toronto, and, uh, and Times Square is overwhelming, right? And your attention is just drawn everywhere. And what happens is that capacity for constructive internal reflection or for endogenous uh, control of attention can sort of atrophy. And I think boredom can maybe uh, push us to seek out that external stimulation as a short-term solution to our problems, but in the long term, it may actually end up really um, making the situation worse. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I think that, that some of what you were saying about creativity and about that internal reflection being adaptive kind of it just pulls it together, yeah. right? That's right.
8: Yeah.
5: Well, maybe because part of it is to, you know, if you can focus on one thing that's calling for your attention or if you're bored and you, you focus on one response to it mm-hmm. in a creative way... That does engage, That does imply some kind of engagement and depth that you have to then go into. Whereas if it's the Times Square model, you can't. You know, you start moving right. in one direction, but then right. there's this other thing calling right. you there, and you never really go anywhere. Yeah. There's no. There's no attention really paid. It's just constantly. Yeah. I mean, the question is, do you get bored in Times Square? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, shall I open it to questions? No. Mm. So each other, one after the other. Dr. Reeswood would be happy
10: to know that you got me thinking, but it was something I was irritated about. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, but but then you changed it a little uh, a little bit, and it, I think that it was uh, right on target. It was the word you used first, uh, looking for the right word, and uh, you had said uh, the word unengaged. Mm. And the, the, the grammatical word is disengage, ah. right? And disengage, for me, uh, carries an ethical uh, aspect to it. Uh, and If a patient would hmm. say to me that hmm. they were bored, I would say, is there something that you want to do that would be engaged, engage you, something... Uh, you know, save the world, help your family, uh, you know, something, something like that. In other words, it's keyed to taking some kind of action, and and actions have ethical aspects. Um, but I'm very glad that you, uh, and not only that, uh, everybody started using that term, being engaged, which is a very different than something which is. Uh, neurological, uh, essentially neurological. So uh, could you comment on that?
6: Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up and, and I think there's a really important idea here that's fairly complicated, right? And there's a number of elements to, you, to your comment, to your question. Um, engaged is a description of my relationship with something else. Right, so I'm engaged with this, or I'm not engaged with it, and it's it's action-oriented, like you said, and it, as you said, it contains uh, ethical implications. You know, what I choose to engage with, or whether I commit myself to something or not. Unengaged is a description of sort of my cognitive resources, and they are not being utilized. The way to utilize them would be to become engaged. But I think it's important for me to define uh, boredom in a context-free way, because if you um, try to define it in a way that is linked to disengagement, then you need the context to define the state. But if you define the state as this unengaged state, uh, then it is a a definition that sort of transcends the context. Having said that, I think uh, I would agree with all of your points about the Uh, ethical connotations of this topic and the importance of seeing the solution through engagement.
11: Thank you. Uh, My name is Roland Alves from the Paris Analytical Society and I apologize for my English. Uh, So I have one comment and one question for Mr. Polisotti. Uh, I, I'd like to emphasize the importance of time. Huh? Uh, when we speak of boredom, uh, Brodsky's "Invasion of Time," and uh, this preoccupation about time goes and about how avoid to avoid boredom goes far beyond the Enlightenment. Uh, I don't know if you know about Palazzo um, Schifanoia in Ferrara. It's um, uh, it's it's a beautiful story because uh, a duke of, of, of Ferrara in Italy uh, the family Deste uh, uh, one of the, the dukes in uh, the 14th century built a new palace and it, uh, he called it Palazzo Schifanoia Schifanoia in Italian is uh, um, uh, Eschivare la noia which is to avoid the boredom. And he commissioned two painters of the Renaissance to uh, um, paint frescoes on, on, on the walls of a, a room, which is called uh, Il Salotto dei Mesi, the, the Room of the Month, because these two painters, Francesco della Cosa and Cosmetura, which are very important painters of the Renaissance, uh, they painted uh, uh, the month of the year. So it's about time. They painted, the, so the, this um, uh, preoccupation of the boredom led them to a creation, to an artistical creation of representing the time. That's my my first comment. And, and the time is, is is also important because it's uh, maybe it could link us to melancholia, and and to the melancholia uh, to um, you spoke of, of the, the uh, to engage mentally through things. But uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, our patients uh, very often they are not able to engage because they're not not able to they no, no capacity for cathexis, mm-hmm. uh, and that's also about boredom
12: yeah everything
11: in boredom is, uh,
7: yeah. is everything so it's Mental a relationship just pay attention mm-hmm. to yeah. mm-hmm. to the word in german yeah. lange baile and the opposite
11: "kurzweile." Yeah. baile lange right. Beile, yeah, the, the, the time is long yeah. it, it doesn't time, pass time it's, time it's the, the subjective impression that the time is not passing mm-hmm.
7: and sometimes the feeling thing. we are experiencing when when we are bored mm-hmm. is because we feel bad of been spending our time in doing anything. Mm-hmm. Our time passes. Yeah. And,
11: mm. and the question for, for you is, uh, as a translator of Gustave Flaubert, could you um. say some words on uh, Madame Bovary?
8: Mm-hmm.
11: Well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just a kind few of <laughs> 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 a lot can say about Madame Bovary. Well, uh, uh, if we speak about boredom uh, we yeah. can't avoid Madame Bovary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I suppose
5: the, the, the simplest thing one could say is that um, she's a, a good case study and it's self-destructive behavior that one can indulge in if one is bored.
11: Uh. <laughs> in, in French but, psychiatry, uh, the term bovaris I don't know if you use it in, in, in America, it's, it's a very uh, particular kind of boredom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, boredom with yeah. insatisfaction.
5: With, uh... In the sense that there's something, um, you know, sort of a grass is always greener kind of um, yeah. uh, a sense that well, there's this, this ideal out there that, that can be attained and that in fact doesn't really exist. Um, you also brought up something, I don't mean to hold you up, but there, you brought up one um, thing that actually, actually we might not have time to touch on here, but I'd be curious at some point to know what the scientists and the philosophers think <laughs> of um, the relationship between boredom and depression. Uh, because it seems to me that those, you, you alluded to this, that, um, that those two are also have a connection, and that yeah. boredom and depression you know, might be maybe two sides of the same coin. I don't know.
1: It's a, yeah, I was <coughs> in, it, sure, yeah. I mean, in reference to that, uh, I was about to say, I don't mean it whatsoever to reduce what you said so well to uh, discussions of neurotransmitters and such. There is a nice correspondence here, um, which is related to the way time is perceived in people based on their sort of how much dopamine we, we have sort of coursing through our veins. And you know the most famous case of someone having a very long, a low, low amount of dopamine are people with Parkinson's disease who are almost like moving in slow motion, right? Their, their time is much slowed. And their time sense is, is changed as well. And that's very interesting. Uh, depression, of course, has all sorts of uh, effects on all different neurotransmitters in the brain when one is depressed. But one of the changes, of, again, is an effect on dopamine levels. Some people, especially elderly patients, when they become depressed, they can actually appear somewhat Parkinsonian, we mm-hmm. say, because their dopamine levels have dropped sufficiently for that to be manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is the same issue. If dopamine is the sort of... Um, the stimulus, let's say, that make, makes us move here or there or elsewhere, and when that is at low ebb, we don't have that uh, to sort of guide us forward. And that doesn't mean our desires or wishes are gone, and that's important. And, and I think because they're not gone, that may be a recipe for feeling bored, right? Mm-hmm.
8: But, but, actually, I have a question. So you mentioned the, the distinction between boredom and apathy. So mm-hmm. it that's seems right. to me that you could be depressed, and I don't know if this is true, so yeah. it, um, You could be depressed and not, I mean, be so apathetic that you're actually not bored because you don't want, can't even imagine, don't even want to get out of this state Mm. because you don't, right? And whereas boredom could actually be an improvement of that. the the, the desire to, you know, experience something else. You've hit it
1: perfectly. That's right. They they very much do overlap, and it's a very common uh, bit of confusion for family members and caregivers to people with Parkinson's, for example. That they think of them, that they're bo- that they're depressed, right. just because yeah. they are so apathetic. Right. And right. They, so there are there are pure forms of apathy where there's n- there's no boredom involved. They have no wishes, right. and then there's sort of it could shade from one to the other. And you're you're again correct if you move towards feeling a restless sort of boredom. That's a that's a movement in the right direction. Yeah,
7: it mm-hmm. seems that we use the the word boredom very lightly, very that's right. easily
1: in all different ways. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
6: There's so much more that could be said about boredom and depression, so I won't get into that. Whoa. But they are very much linked, uh, developmentally across time. Um, the time is a really important point, which we didn't talk about today. Yeah. But you know, it is part of the definition yeah. that phenomenological feeling of the slow mm-hmm. passage of time. And we've already heard about the relationship between dopamine and the perception of time passing. We also know that cognitively, when you are uh, not uh, engaged. there's a sense of time passing slowly as well. And so we know that boredom-prone people uh, don't judge the passage of time well. And in our our studies, when we try to manipulate and make people bored, we rig the passage of time uh, as one of our variables to try to change that. And then there's time, but then there's things happening in that time too, right? And so you can think about boredom as sort of, everything is happening at that moment and nothing is about to happen, Mm. right? Uh, and so you think about, um, you know, uh, the difference between art versus sort of, you know, pornography or, or propaganda, right? And in propaganda, pornography, it's all there. What you see is what you get. There's nothing more, whereas art kind of draws you in. There's that sense of walking through the garden, and as you turn a corner, a new vista presents itself, a new possibility. And in boredom, that stops, Right? That possibility of more stops. So there's time, but then there's also what is happening within that time that's important to think about.
7: Emma Bovary was not uh, depressed.
8: She <laughs> was frustrated. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes.
4: yeah. This conversation has been anything but boring. <laughs> yeah. um, two quick questions and a quick comment. Um, wondering about mindfulness and meditation, and the effect on bored, being bored and boredom. Um, the second question is, are curious people less bored? And can curiosity be, in fact, an antidote to boredom? And the third is just a pedestrian definition of perhaps boredom is just the nanosecond before we reach for our phones. <laughs> <laughs> These things.
8: Nano boredom. That would be nanoboredom. Micro boredom.
6: Uh, I, I, on the, I, I can say a few things about those questions. On the issue about mindfulness, um, there's a little bit of research on mindfulness and boredom. And As you would expect, people that are high in trait mindfulness or people who regularly practice mindfulness meditation, when put in a, a vigilance task or a sustained attention task, which is very, very boring, trust me, <laughs> um, where you just have to watch a computer screen for a rare kind of event that, yeah. that may happen and then press a button. Um, People that are high in in trait mindfulness uh, experience less boredom and less discomfort and less agitation during those kinds of uh, potentially boring situations. Mm. Um, So indeed, um, mindfulness uh, prevents or protects one from boredom and there's some open questions about precisely why. One idea is that mindfulness actually results in the strengthening of attentional capacity so that you then can attend more effectively. But there's also the idea that mindfulness may make you less emotionally reactive to the state of being under aroused. And we just have one study that we haven't published yet where we're looking at this, and so far the data seems to be more consistent with the idea that mindfulness has its beneficial effects via that emotional reactivity pathway, not through an increasing attention capacity. Um, So they're definitely related. And curiosity, yeah. Did you want to uh, speak to that issue?
8: Um, yeah. So I, so I think it all goes back to this. So yes, I, I would definitely think that more curious people are less bored, and I think it all goes back to this idea of being able to generate questions. So, so, so the key about curiosity is the way we think it works is that you encounter a situation that triggers bunch of hypotheses in your mind what could be happening here it could be xyz and then it's the willingness to engage and answer the question right that's how it works so 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 in a sense it it goes back to the same thing as being able to generate mental activity which is then very satisfying so answering those questions is very rewarding it's about those internal rewards that it's, I think fuels human civilization. I mean, without if we didn't have curiosity, we'd still be back in the caves. I think, but anyway, so so yes, so it's it's exactly the antithesis. And I think of, of boredom, I guess, as the 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 failure in some way to trigger that mental activity. Right.
1: I, I would. Yeah. I would add, yeah. Um, yeah. and I I'm hoping that your John's last interpretation of. uh, what how mindfulness might work I'm, I actually i don 't know if it's true, but I, I like that I agree with it that is that if you feel more comfortable managing this state of you know being idle minded let's say mm-hmm. and not get tense and stressed about it and actually think I can master it, that might be a way also to master being able to focus your attention when you want to be able to focus it, not getting anxious about it um, I think, too, the, the other topic we didn't talk on very much that relates to your question, your, your comment or your question about curiosity, is that and I think this is something all educators would really say, yes, a big thumbs up. We want to be able to cultivate curiosity in people. And how do we go about that? What are the different mechanisms by which we do it? And I think art and, and science and literature are our most uh, common ways that we try to do that with people. And I think there's proof that it works.
8: Yeah, so emotional reactivity is very important, and uh, there are some studies on that. It it actually um, affects memory. There are direct studies on memory, so uh, the way that you remember an item or an event, depends on the circumstances. So in the laboratory, we can motivate memory by, for example, by rewards or by avoiding punishments. We can put somebody in a task. And and it's been shown that the encoding of information differs in those two contexts. So if you're motivated by rewards, you encode more incidental information. There's more, a richer context that's being stored. Uh, Whereas motivation by punishment, which presumably induces anxiety, narrows the focus.
5: It's interesting because right? it, it, so, yeah. all of these seem so to, the, without being too right. systematic about it, a kind of a, right. a, a, you know, sort of a dividing line in which you, on the one hand you have boredom and anxiety, and it goes back to yeah. you know, yeah. that, it goes back to the, the, mm-hmm. the example of the, the kid who can't get the math, so he gets bored with, with the study of math because right. he's afraid, he's anxious right. about it, mm-hmm. um, right. versus curiosity and ease, uh, curiosity and comfort, which is that yeah. when you are more comfortable with the state of not doing anything and having to focus your attention in a, in a, in a way that many people might find boring, you're actually less bored by it. There's right. a kind of a, um, again, a sort of a reward of, of um, self-fulfillment that yeah. even comes
12: from those, right. those activities. Thank <clears throat> yes, uh, thank you all very much for this. Um, I'm a person who qualifies as essentially very bored. Um, My name is Nancy Garnier. I'm a musician uh, and uh, performing and teaching. Um, My memory uh, as a child was of incredible boredom, except when I was playing the piano, mostly fooling around. And when I was about 12, I hit on um, something in a book by a composer. I knew nothing about anything. My family was not into classical music at all. It turned out it was within a sonata by Mozart. It wasn't the piece. It was specific sounds within that piece that just blew my mind. I thought, oh, there's been a person in the world who hears as I hear. I then uh, subsequently found that the field of music was not at all interested in that quality of hearing. That rather, it was assumed that people heard a certain way. I don't believe that's true. I still don't believe that that's true. I believe that this power of shared intensity is, is, is epitomized in the action of hearing. It's become my life's work, in fact. The thing that has meant most to me in putting together my incredible capacity for boredom and the intensity of my reaction to specific sounds was measured by A. James Hudspeth at Rockefeller University, who found out that there are 16,000 moving hair cells over here in your cochlea and 16,000 over there, and that they impart information to the brain 200 times Faster than any other sense perception. When I tell this to a child, student who's eight years old, (laughs) they go, wow. And there's no possible way they can get bored. None. It's gone. There's so much happening. It just totally transformed my ability to take in all kinds of information from disabled students to. I don't know all kinds of people. Anyway, I've gone. I've joined the Society for Music Cognition, and uh, Music Perception and Cognition. and To my astonishment, they have bought into this kind of mangle ironed approach to listening. So the examples they study are all recorded. They've all been listened to a million times. They're all. It's like canned green beans, it's such a massive (laughs) disappointment to me. I just throw out to you, if you're studying boredom, to uh, consider the dynamic of hearing and how um, it can inform vision. Usually it's the reverse, that vision is used to kind of quiet the hearing down so it won't be so intense. Is that a question? I don't
1: know, I hope it's a question. Well, it's certainly an inspiring uh, story. No, I'll say this about what you said. I don't know if this is so. I'd ask you more questions to find out. But no, I think you brought up something very interesting about how uh, having an experience of a shared experience played such an important role in unlocking your feeling of curiosity. You know, because you said, oh, someone heard this and intended it the way I hear things. And that idea of sort of empathy, uh, obviously played a role, and I think that's why the best teachers are often the ones who uh, impart a feeling of empathy in their students. So,
5: but I think it also brings up, um, you know, this without any scientific basis to say so, that the, to me, instinctively, it makes perfect sense that people hear things different ways and that it does bring up what I think we were touching on before about you know, part of curiosity or boredom has to do also with personal response. You know, the same reason that someone could be very moved by Mozart and someone else could be very moved by Ozzy Osbourne, and, you know, who's to say that it's, who's to say that there's a, you know, a wrong or a right answer there? Uh, it just depends on... Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. I'm not, i not going to give you <laughs> answer.
8: Yeah, so, so let me give, I want to I give a little perspective, because you, you mentioned... It's, studies of the year, of the cochlea, and so on. So in neuroscience, again, I think this is, this. I come back to this topic of how early we are in neuroscience, because, I mean, there's a magic to all the senses. I mean, vision is incredibly rich, olfaction is incredibly rich, uh, hearing as well. But but in, but in neuroscience, we study them separately, just like you said, in the field of musing cognition. So we study the receptors as some just engineering systems input and how things are represented and then when we study other things like emotions and decision making that's a different topic like a different world different people and clearly there's an enormous interface there because the way much of our pleasure comes from interacting with the world and there's enormous variability there in how people sense and hear things and the emotion anyway all of that is totally unexplored so
6: <laughs> Still. I was just going to say one yeah. other thing about it. the other thing I heard in your in your um, story there was the importance I would call that of sort of doing ecologically valid research right and so you know the joke about you know you come into the parking lot and and there 's the drunk looking for his keys. Uh, under the lamppost, you know, and you say, well, what yeah, are you doing? I'm yeah. looking for my keys. Well, yeah. where'd you lose them? Over there. <laughs> well, why are you looking here? Because the light's better, right? Exactly, and, yes. and so, yes. you know, exactly. I, I think a lot of science can be characterized in that manner, right? Like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, I hold that, but I still hold my, my earlier comments about our need for more precision, right? And so it's a balance. It's a, it's a balancing act. Uh, mm-hmm. But thank you for your
1: story. I have one more yeah. real quick comment about what you said. I don't know the author these, but it was a recent study that, of infants that showed that they observed the effort being made by their parents uh, doing some tasks, some task that might be frustrating. And the infants knew, saw the difference between the parents making uh, effort or not. I don't know how they measured the outcome, but there was some sort of outcome. This is in Nature. It was not a hmm. uh, obscure journal or anything like that. But it was interesting that how, you know, that idea of empathy and that, oh, that's important to someone else, important to me. So that must be important. And as a way of engendering curiosity, you could see that being rather potent.
13: I want to <laughs> my thanks um, to all of you for such an interesting conversation. I live in this neighborhood in which there are a lot of children, of um, working parents, a number of whom have wherewithal, and increasingly children go to school, after school have a lot of activities that are assigned, gymnastics, art, whatever, uh, in sort of like little uh, channels. And in between, I've observed, they will say, I'm bored when one activity is over, I'm bored. And it's as if they say it to whomever's around as if that's their responsibility to find uh, how it should be resolved. Um, And I wondered, you had mentioned internal reflection. What happens to that in that kind of a situation when you're not allowed to be bored or it quickly has to be resolved, whereas in other times, children were left supposedly to their own you know, finding their own answers to
6: these things. There's one metaphor that might speak to that uh, from uh, uh, George Simmel, a sociologist, many years ago. He talked about the relationship between technology and boredom and how they collude with one another. We're hearing lots about collusion while, so the idea that that boredom and technology collude. And on this particular issue, the idea is that using technology is like falling into a fast-moving river where you can forget how to swim. The river carries you along and you don't even need to know how to swim anymore. You just, before you know it, you're downstream. And so I would use that metaphor to communicate the idea that if your time is structured exogenously, if your attention is directed exogenously, the capacity to endogenously direct your attention may atrophy. Now I can't say this based on any kind of research finding at this point. But this is certainly something that we're trying to see if we can bring under the light, (laughs) the lamppost of science to see if we can kind of actually quantify that sort of effect. What what
13: loss is there? I mean, what happens then?
6: It's, you could, I I mean, to to put it very metaphorically, it's like a skill that uh, atrophies. Uh, When we're born, we have a hard time directing our attention, right? Our attention is very much stimulus bound. There's a, a, you know, a rattle over here, you know, and then it, take some development for us to be able to disengage from that and to engage in internal reflection. And so this is a skill that needs to be taught and needs to be developed. And I think the excessive use of technology may short circuit opportunities to develop that skill. And it's
5: not only technology. I mean, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I mean, I I hear what you're saying about those children and I see it a lot myself. Um, You know, we are not in a society that actually fosters that sense of self-reliance and the beneficial effects of being bored, i.e. using your own devices to mentally come out of that state and to actually use it to some kind of positive, you know, that creative capacity that we were talking about earlier on. You know, standing in the subway. I try to read when I'm in the subway, but there are announcements all the time that have nothing to do with anything. There are people talking, you know, there's just, you're constantly stimulated. When I was in, when I was in, um, when I lived in Boston, there was this one moment that, thank goodness, only lasted about a week. It was an experiment, and I think they must have gotten a lot of, complaints where they suddenly started blasting music on the platform so that, God forbid, you should be bored for two seconds or <laughs> actually, you know, alone with your thoughts while waiting for the train to come. And I was thinking, you know, I, I, I want my thoughts. I want a little bit of quiet. I want to actually think, find out what's going on in there. That's uh, like
13: going into a doctor's office where they're playing some kind yeah. of yes. medical TV right. or something. Exactly. And it's That's like,
5: right. And blasting usually. so yes. you can't even, yeah. and, and this also slides into the <laughs> ethical issue, right, about who
6: controls... The focus of our attention, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And and who controls what's in the focus of our attention? And have we given that up, right? Have we willingly kind of just said, well, okay, you get to control it,"
9: right?
5: Yeah.
9: Along the way, I feel I was taught in the clinical situation to look at boredom as a defense or as a way of uh, avoiding or not feeling. Uh, some other affective state, whether it 's depression, anxiety, annoyance, anger, uh, I think fear of death and anxiety about death may be present in everything we talked about about time we don 't have that much time and we 're worried about losing it uh, and then in the in the clinical situation also I was taught uh, Ted Jacobs was one of the great teachers in this uh, that to use my my own sense of boredom when patients are obsessively going on about something that's not important to them, to try to bring them back to the things that are important by look, pointing out their uh, areas of defense and get them to, and, and what usually happens is once people start talking about something important, they're, uh, again, become alive and, and all of that, and this thing, I was, I was thinking about Eric Handel with the eplizia, you know, you hit the snout, first time, the is really excited about all this, you hit the snout, snout 20 times after a while, eplizia's say give me, give me something else, you know, this is, <laughs> and if you, you know, if you, sl- if you kill the eplizia, it's probably not, not that good, but, but um, we haven't. Uh, m- maybe Ed could talk more about this how the, and, and uh, how this comes up in the clinical situation and how people use their own boredom, uh, understanding of their patients' boredom, and then this question of is boredom related to some pathological interior state? If you're very healthy and you're always curious and all of that, you don't get bored unless somebody else annoys you uh, with their <laughs> narcissism. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, discussion of this
1: you want to what, uh, give it? No, I, I think my, my, own way of, my own
0: way of dealing with that is try yeah. mm-hmm. I try always to maintain the curiosity within the session, I can manage
1: to maintain the curiosity, in the situation. I think of it as being, if there is this sort of, if there is, if it's so, that there is sort of this toggling back and forth between just sort of our minds being kind of empty and then taking action, if that's a reasonable metaphor or a paradigm for what we do when we get curious or 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 or, or field board, um, I think one of the mechanisms that may stymie that would be thwarted, you know, wishes or that sort of goes back to the psychoanalytic model of it. If you if the person has an act, there's an act they have in mind, conscious usually unconsciously, but sometimes not always unconsciously, and they can't act it, sort of like Hamlet. They dither, and they say, I'm bored, and I, well, you know, in so many words. Um, and, uh, and it could also lead to depression because of the lack of attaining goals and, and the loss that may be, come as a consequence, are all sorts of ramifications. But I think that idea, wh- where's the action? Why is the action not taking place?
9: By the way, the thing about action may have to do with whether you're... From the Eastern way of thinking or the Western way of thinking, a lot of these issues, like mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, and and how uh, comfortable people are within their skins, mm-hmm. may be different uh, in cultures where, where uh, they're trying to reduce desire rather than just get them uh, satisfied. Well, but what's it's interesting? In
1: culture. What's interesting about Eastern tradition mm-hmm. is though they're not say, they don't say don't take action. They're saying don't have desires, yes. and that's an important difference. So they actually do have a sense of that, that action being important. You yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
14: One of the things you you started with was that boredom was the desire for desire, but there's also this um, rejection of the options on offer, Mm -hmm. like for a child who's on board, will go out and swing or stay in and play with your cars. Mm -hmm. Things that were engaging yesterday and will be engaging again tomorrow Mm -hmm. for some reason are failing to capture that attention at this particular time. And uh, the... The physical pain of a hot stove will always be the same, whereas this attentional pain of boredom can vary. So I was just wondering what you, what your thoughts on that were.
6: Yeah, can you just expand your last point there about the physical pain and, and the attentional pain?
14: So a hot stove yeah. always gives you the signal that's something you should avoid. Right. But a day in which you're not interested in the things that have been interesting, and will be interesting again, right. are giving you this boredom signal, this attentional pain. Right. That doesn't happen every single time.
6: Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I would say yeah. when the signal does happen, it's pushing you to find engagement, either with what you were doing, that may have in the past engaged you, or something else. But you know, your, your first point maybe speaks to this, I'm not sure, It'd come back to me if it doesn't, but um... indeed you know the boredom is this desire for an actionable desire and the flip side of that is to say um, you know what is is not okay right so you know when you're when you're bored there is a rejection of the present moment uh... it's sort of saying i won't have this right i won't commit to this i won't engage with this i won't have this and the degree of sort of obstinance I guess can vary to some degree, you know, or or is it um, driven by an oppositional stance or is it driven by a stance that I can't connect with it, you know, but I I, I very much resonate with your idea that, that boredom, we talked about it in the positive, a desire for a desire, but there is an inverse side of that as well and that's very much part of the phenomenology.
5: And I wonder too so, whether this doesn't shade into so, what you were saying about boredom moving toward frustration because <laughs> there could be some sense of frustration that this was interesting to me yesterday and now I can't get interested in it. What's going on here?
8: Yeah, so, so I want to, so going to your um, comparison with pain. So, you know, it's, it's a bit, there's a bit of a cognitive illusion here that if there is a stimulus that, that whatever we're, the world is, the way like we open our eyes and things are, And that's reality, that's given, right? Um, But I think we fail to appreciate that unless our brains make a decision to engage, and if we don't engage with that, things are not, really, right? So even the simple decision that I made, decision to engage with this part of the world and to ignore what's behind me, um, I think it's a bit the same thing. So just because you have that toy there today, it doesn't mean it's going to engage me in the same way. There's a very complex filter going on that determines my response to that toy, right? Now, if things are stimuli that are really strong, like a hot stove or if somebody hits you on the head, you're going to engage with that, right? But, but that's a very small fraction of the... Of I, all the information Canada has
7: to do with yeah. survival. Sorry. Right, right. right. Oh, no. uh, yes, yeah. I, I see your point yeah. when you say uh, that boredom is also a rejection of the possibilities. Uh, as I, am, I understand your point, yes, I totally agree because uh, sometimes boredom is the result of, uh, yeah, you simply are rejecting the possibilities that the environment is offering you because. Uh, are, um, uh, how to say, uh, I'm trying to find the, the word, are pre-planned, uh, so you previously expect what are the possibilities, you know in advance, so there is no novelty in, in these possibilities of the environment. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that was your point, your first point, when you say boredom is a rejection of the possibilities? Not even
14: necessarily a rejection, but perhaps even a failure of the stimuli to capture your attention.
7: Yeah.
8: Oh. yeah, yeah, and I, I think yeah, you're right. F- I think f- you're f- right. F- you're right. F- f- You don't because- see the prospect of learning. You yeah, don't yeah. see the prospect of any any new pattern. I think we're constantly looking for patterns in yeah, the, the brain, and if you don't see it coming, it's just not engaged. That's this, this a big is part I mean. of the engagement. Yeah. The
1: choices right? themselves, the range of choices right. themselves, can become hackneyed. You know, right. they, you know like you know, yeah. these are these are the range of things I might do, and now I'm bored right. with that as exactly. well. Yeah. Exactly.
7: There is, there is, um, the point is there are, there are not uh, possibilities in which uh, you can be engaged, but you know all of them. Right, So exactly. who, who they are going to... Right, think. right.
3: Um, thank you for the discussion. It's really, really great. Um, it's taken me by surprise because I didn't think that boredom would be such an <laughs> interesting and fun topic. I'm just going to read my notes because they um, turned into questions. Um, and so it would be, is boredom a state of which we perhaps are also not comfortable being with uh, our state of being or uh, being with ourself? Uh, is it okay to be bored? And should it as such be encouraged among especially children to just be until any sort of engagement Uh, comes naturally and not as a suggestion or guidance or pressure uh, of another who has perhaps an already preconceived notion of what boredom is for them. Um, And so can one allow their own experience to choose what they want to do and be, and until that comes, to be okay to be bored?
6: On your your first comment, your first question, I mean, it's a little bit, I mean, Kierkegaard talked about boredom throwing you back into yourself, right? And so um, that when we can't have that engagement with the world, that intentional stance towards the world, that something falls apart and we're left with nothing but ourselves. And that's a very kind of adversive sort of state. Um... So I do think that the, 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 that first part of what you said makes a lot of sense, but I would suggest that we shouldn't be encouraging people to, to foster the state of boredom, as I said earlier, but we should be encouraging them to develop the capacity to be quiet, right? To develop the capacity to be understimulated, to develop the capacity for that constructive internal reflection that we spoke about earlier. And I think, um, That's not the same as being bored, right? That's that's being quiet and uh, being with yourself, and I do think that that is uh, something that needs to be fostered.
5: But I think just a small—I agree completely with what you're saying. But I think you know, maybe a small nuance is that the idea that it might not be okay to be bored is maybe something that. Then increases that sense of anxiety yes. that in fact goes yes. kind of hand yes. in hand with boredom. Yes. I mean, the reality is, of course, it's okay to be bored, and right. everyone is at some point. Right. And it's I, not I agree. A, I'm
7: allowed to promote boredom, but. Exactly.
5: There's nothing not you want to tell people be bored, <laughs> but it does happen, and there yeah. are things that, very good things that could come out of it. Um, yeah,
4: you know, that, if that's you're that's not a so very not so anxious important point, about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Someone here used the word uh, magical earlier. I think you were referring to. Um, I forget, you said something about being, uh, that sense is being so magical, mm. right? Mm. Um, yeah. I think that sort, of, uh, sort of existential challenge to be, to just be, it's such a, a wonderful possibility that we don't teach that very well to people, that, that this is a creative and very exciting for me to create myself in some way. I mean, that's getting out there philosophically speaking, but I think you asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's wonderful. Getting people to really engage in that, at that level is so important.
5: And the challenge is, you know, this is a society in which the, the possibility of just being right. without distraction yeah. is becoming harder and harder. But
8: I want to ask you something. So it, you live in this society, right? Mm-hmm. And you manage to enjoy being by yourself without distraction, right? So, so to what extent do you think, I mean, cle- clearly there are individual differences, right? So some <laughs> people would just, you know, always be able to occupy themselves, think about something, inquire <laughs> something, research, do this or that, no matter how many cell phones they have. <laughs> But then other people, so so what do you think? I mean, right, so is this part nurture, part nature? Uh, I, I don't know what the question is. But how, so how how would we structure an environment that, for example, that encourages the other? I mean, look, you could say, for me, people ask me, does the internet, does that induce boredom? And I'm, I'm like, no, just the opposite. It's more stuff to learn and find out. It's much easy, more easily available information. How can I possibly be bored? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> right, well, I understand that there are two responses, right, but, how, but the question is, how do you nudge people, you know, more one way than, it, it's not just the environment, it's our reaction yeah. to it.
6: Mm-hmm. Well, there, you, I right? mean, we know that there are a right. lot of um, individual differences in the propensity to be bored. Yeah. And that's a whole topic in its own right that we didn't touch on today. Yeah. Like, what are the psychological characteristics that predispose right. someone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to feel bored? And, and in right. the psychology literature, there's actually more work that's been done on that on the state of boredom, right? So there's state boredom, and then there's trait Trade boredom, boredom, or the right. propensity to be bored. Um, But now I think the field is circling back and realizing that the way we had defined and measured trait boredom was quite problematic. Um, But there are some findings, and and to the question about the the clinical setting, alexithymia uh, is highly correlated with boredom proneness. So... You know, just to give one example, and there's many others that we could look at as well.
1: You should define that for...
6: Oh, so alexithymia refers to, uh, I think it literally means um, no words for feelings. Would that be the right word? Mm -hmm. So someone who is high in alexithymia would, um, if you ask them, how are you doing today? They might say, oh, I have a tummy ache, right? So they might somatize, Mm -hmm. or they might just say, oh, I feel bad. But they couldn't say, I'm disappointed or Mm -hmm. I'm upset. So they lack the capacity to... Uh, label and, dis- and and reflect on their rich emotional kind of and I guess there's some debate on whether it's purely a lack of a label or lack of an experience or some mm-hmm. combination of both but I think about emotions as compass points right that orient us in life toward moving away from things that are a problem or moving towards things that are of value to us and so if we lack those compass points if we are high in alexithymia it's more likely that we're going to then struggle with boredom.
1: Very cool point that the insula Insular cortex is close to the speech center in the, in the mind, right. in the brain, yeah.
15: Hi. Hi, thank you for the discussion. Just a disclaimer, my father, Gerald, has been talking about this for weeks in preparation, which has been a bit uh, boring. Uh, so I would like to thank the other uh, conversants for giving their thoughts on it, so I could put that all together with my father's thoughts for the past few weeks. But anyway... Um, my father had an earlier comment about Murph being the opposite of boredom. And being a millennial, it made me think about memes. Cause I say this both in jest and in seriousness and jest because my father's on a round table and to ask him a question about memes seems pretty appropriate. But anyway, but the seriousness comes in the fact that I feel memes have become the vector of a lot of millennial humor and the humor for the generation after me, I think Generation Z. And it seems to be a cure, in my eyes, if mirth is the opposite of boredom. It's a cure of boredom. Boredom in the nanosecond scale, as the other questioner mentioned, of you know how you feel before you reach for your phone. So how do you think about that statement of meme culture is the millennials attempt at curing boredom? And do you think it's a good idea if, in this vein to, it, it, like, do memes actually cure this nanosecond boredom, or is it just distracting us from the reality that this thing exists and it's always going to exist and that this isn't the best way to go about it.
1: Thank you, son, for reminding me of that comment I made earlier. <laughs> I uh, actually, I intended to follow up on that comment about mirth being the opposite in some sense, and I don't mean it strictly speaking, but uh, the mirth being the opposite of boredom. Uh, there's some ideas about the sort of development of uh, a sense of taste going back to the 18th century, where I think it was uh, DuBose wrote a, a, a piece early on about aesthetics and the theory of aesthetics where he he said that um, the playfulness of the mind or the play of the mind is what allows people to find beauty in things or is a cause of uh, identifying things as being beautiful. And it's an interesting way to look at an interesting uh, paradigm because playfulness is another version sort of of curiosity or it's a natural uh, um, stage of curiosity. And I think in many animal species, I know for sure the uh, mammalian species, and um, it, the, the, uh, the memes uh, come in, it really comes down to well, what's funny and what might in, in, engage you in a feeling of mirth. I think if it's just sort of a sensational and you know, exciting and sensational, then it's not very helpful to stave off boredom. And it's a way of just getting like a shot of cocaine. Um, maybe not that good, but you know, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, But if it engages you to think in a funny way or in a a playful way, even more important than funny, if it engages you to to engage in a playful way with things, then I think that's a wonderful uh, remedy to boredom.
6: Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And I I guess I might add that creating clever memes is a better antidote than observing them. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
1: well put, yeah.
4: Yeah, actually, the, the playfulness links to what I was thinking about, which really has to do with infant and child development and what we've learned about the importance of mother-infant play or caregiver-infant play from very early on in terms of regulating both emotional states and attentional states. And then as development proceeds to then get to a state where the, the child you know, can toddle over and show mommy something or daddy and daddy says, wow... the little caterpillar is moving, and how important those shared interpersonal experiences are, Mm -hmm. not only in affect regulation, which I think is a lot of the underlying stuff, but in expanding capacity for both attention and curiosity, Mm -hmm. which, you know, certainly... And and trauma, where you see alexithymia and other states of... Um, deadness, variations of that, and, and things we might call boredom. Mm. That we really see in the clinical situation all the time. And I think that's why we focused on it, whether it's seeing as a defense and always wondering both what is happening now with my patient that either my patient is saying they're bored or I'm feeling bored, what's happening between the two of us and what's not being touched on, as well as historically of what what was the join, interpersonal joining experience and shared mm. experience of both. Curiosity and affect is really important. In, in, th- I think in thinking about boredom and and curiosity, which is clearly important.
6: It, there's a study that we need to do there, right, to see if there's sort of generational uh, boredom, uh, if it's something that, uh, you know, those developmental experiences increase the likelihood of it.
2: Okay. Thank you. <laughs>